that just inspires me. Like what she's saying about being made for this mission, especially something that's bigger than yourself. Um, do, you ever, do you believe the quote, no sacrifice, no victory? Um, it's a quote that could easily sell a movie. It's a quote that um, you'd probably hear on ESPN. Um, I think Jay Cutler probably believed it more in the negative sense. After he tore his, his leg, he's like, mm, no sacrifice, uh, not going any further. And then no victory for the Bears, and we can just stop there. Um, but I think this could be believed in a positive sense, this idea of no sacrifice, no victory. It was just a year ago that there was this seven-year-old boy named Charlie Simpson. I don't know if any of you ever heard of Charlie Simpson. He's from London. And he watched the Haiti earthquakes. And he said, I want to do something about that. I'd really like to raise 500 pounds, because uh, he's from London. I'd like to raise 500 pounds, and I'm going to ride my bike, and I'm just going to get people to sponsor me. The news media caught this. And they raised over 120,000 pounds. It's like $200,000 for this little kid riding his bike around South Park, England, five miles. And, and he, he just said, like, no sacrifice? Well, five miles. Well, for him, a seven-year-old boy, he's like, it was quite tiring. <laughs> but important, you know, more important than the bears and more important than um, Charlie Simpson. What does the Bible really say about this idea of sacrifice and victory? And what does it have to do with mission? And so to really understand that, I think we need to go into God's word. And so we're going to go to Mark 8. And if you have a Bible, I really encourage you because we're going to be in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10 um, because there's some repeated themes that are just really huge. And so if it feels like you're getting like a one, two, three punch, it's because you probably are. At least I did. Um, because when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts doing miracles, all these people are like, do you think he's the one? Do you think he's the one? Do you think it really could be? Because, see, all throughout history, these people known as the Jews, this, pe- this nation of Israel, they had heard about this expected Messiah, this deliverer, if you will. The Messiah meant, like, conqueror. It, meant, it actually meant victory. Like, this powerful conqueror who would remove the people's enemies. At that time, it was Rome. So this Roman Empire was kind of, like, squatting in their land, and, and, and the people believed that, that this Messiah was going to come, and, like, a, a, an old Rocky movie or something, going to come through and just wipe these people out. That was their picture of the Messiah. And they start to go, I think it's Jesus. I think it's Jesus. And so these rumors start becoming more and more popular. And you know, when rumors become more and more popular, it's like, well, are those truth? Or, or is the truth truth? We're not really sure. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus Jesus takes his disciples away. So they're in this popular land of Galilee, and, and he takes them to these villages in Caesarea Philippi, which is like out in the boonies. So they leave kind of the main popular area, and they go up into these villages. And as they're on their way, verse 27, Jesus says, Who do people say I am? And his disciples replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, a prophet. Others say Elijah, a prophet. And still others say one of the prophets. Jesus says, Well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, the very vocal disciple, says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're this anointed victor. You're the guy who's going to come and wipe out our enemies. And Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. 
Now, why would he do that? Like, that should be good news. You're the guy. You're the guy. You're going to come in. You're the champion. We'll follow you anywhere. Well, he didn't because I believe they didn't understand what his mission was. And since they didn't understand what his mission was, he's like, you can't go telling people because you don't get it. You have a different definition of Messiah than what I have. And so he doesn't tell them to say anything. And then he says, he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man, which is a term for Messiah, that Jesus uses for himself, that the Messiah must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the religious powers that be and he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Jesus took him aside and began to rebuke him, tell him off. And he says, what are you doing? He says, get behind me, Satan, which is a really strong way of saying, like, you're out of your mind. You don't understand this from a God perspective. You're trying to think of this from your side. And then he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Here's the part. For whoever wants to, lose his, wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And at this time, the disciples are like, I don't get it. I don't understand. Like, so in order to really understand and have eternal life, I have to lose my life. I, I, okay, fine, whatever. You know, um, I think that's their attitude. I don't mean that irreligiously at all. I think that was their attitude. Okay, fine, whatever. You know, Peter opens his mouth anyway, and we'll just keep going. So they, I think they completely miss it. So if you completely missed it, we're just going to keep going. Because um, in Mark 9, verse 30, they pick it up again. So Jesus um, reveals who he is to like his closest disciples after that. Jesus heals somebody after that. And then, and then they're walking along again, coming back to Galilee in verse 30 of Mark 9. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He didn't want the rumor mills to start, and so he's just taking them kind of in the back roads, if you will. Um, and then he says again, the Son of Man, or the Messiah, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. But they, the disciples, did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Why? Because last time they asked about it, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. So, like, they're, they're a little bit um, not sure what's going on. But this is the second time now um, that they're like, well, Jesus has said he's going to die. Okay, if Jesus is going to die, then um, who's going to replace him? So, verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But the disciples kept quiet because they were arguing about who's the greatest. Well, why would they have been arguing about who's the greatest? Because they had started to realize that Jesus was going to die. And if he was going to die, then his number one student was going to take over because that's how it works, right? I mean, really. So, so then he sits them all down and he says, if any one of you wants to be first... He must be last, and he must be the servant of all. Now, I have a high regard for the Bible, but let's be honest. I mean, do you really think that the disciples were like, oh, yeah. I mean, I try this with my kids, eight, six, and four. Eight, six, four. 
And um, I'm like, you know, Jesus says the last shall be first. And you know what they go? They go, fine, you be last. (laughs) It totally backfired. Um, The only time I was really last was like the whole year of seventh grade track. And I didn't find any spiritual encouragement from being last. In fact, I got ridiculed for being last. I mean, I, I really... How many of you remember who finished fourth place in the Olympics? I mean, they have gold medals, silver medals, bronze medals, fourth. They're not up there. I mean, for that matter, how many of you remember silver medalists? I mean, I love, I love our country, but we have an obsession with being first. I mean, even more than first century Palestine, which is where this was taking place. And being first here was really, really important. So he picks up this kid, and he says, whoever welcomes a little child, which was considered kind of worthless in their culture, like whoever welcomes someone who's not worth it welcomes me. Like you guys still aren't getting this. Um, And I can tell they're not getting it because then they get mad um, about someone else that's claiming to help Jesus, but he's not on their team. And so they get all kind of their panties in a bundle, and you can can read about it, but we'll continue. So in Mark 10, again, like verse 30, verse 32. Mark 10, 32 says, they were up on their way, they walked a lot, they were up on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was leading the way, and his disciples were astonished, and they were a little bit behind him. And then the crowd that was following them was afraid. Okay, so it's Jesus Disciples that are in astonishment, awe, or amazement, and then the crowd that's afraid. Now, I always skipped over that, but I think it's really important. Like, why, why was there this awe and amazement and this fear? Well, right before that, Jesus had told off someone who was really powerful. A very prominent, rich young man had basically come to him and said, what does it take? What does it take to follow you? And Jesus said, this is what it takes for you. And he walked away. And he's like, I can't do that. And so the people are like, well, if he can't do it, then how are we going to do it? And the disciples are thinking, mm-hmm, in your face. Yeah, do you see him tell him off? Mm-hmm, that's right. You remember that last shall be first thing? Yeah, he quotes that again right before this. And the disciples are like, we're last. Now we're first. And you're last. Go away, rich young man who's really powerful. Now the crowds are back here, and they're going, oh, my gosh. If that guy can't do it. Then, then what's the hope for me? So that's the emotion that's going on. And Jesus, again, takes the 12 aside and says, we're going to Jerusalem, verse 33. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Basically, the, the religious rulers are going to condemn him to death and hand him over to the political rulers that are going to kill him. So basically he's saying that the Messiah is not powerful enough to go against these other powers. So now the disciples are really, really scratching their heads. They're like, wait a second. I'm starting to figure out that this Messiah thing isn't about victory, and I can't get over that. But I, I can't understand that it's about sacrifice yet. I'm not there yet. So the next verse says that two of Jesus' closest followers, James and John, they come to Jesus in private, and say, hey, we want you to do us a favor. If you are going to die, then, then we'd like 
um, to be in seats of honor next to you. One here, one here. And Jesus uses very first century Jewish language to say, do you think you can really do that? Like, do you think you can take that? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We want the victory. We don't want the sacrifice part, but we want that. And that's basically what they're saying. And he said, yeah, you'll get it. But I can't, t- I can't choose that. Verse 41. When the other ten heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. Now, why do you think they were indignant? It, it seems to be that maybe they're upset with them, or maybe are they just mad that they didn't think of it first? <laughs> they're like, oh, that was a really good idea, because they still, they still don't get this. So Jesus calls them all together, and I used to play hockey when I was in middle school, and we had a really bad team, and I think this little conversation was kind of like that hockey like, it's not between periods one and two where there's still hope. It's kind of between periods two and three where the other team's now up like 17 to three, at least when we were playing. In hockey, that's a big spread. And the coach was taking us in, and none of us were getting along with each other, and we didn't understand how to play and how to win. And, and Jesus didn't do this, but our coach said some not-so-nice things to us. Um, and Jesus is taking them together, and he's like, you guys aren't getting it. Now, I don't know if he's frustrated. We can't read emotions into the text. But here's what he says. He brings them together and he says, you know what? Those who are regarded as rulers lord it over the people. And the high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be last. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like, and, and if, you, if you study, if you would have, been, if you would have grown up in, in Israel at the time this was written, those things would have flooded to all these prophecies from right here that talk about the Messiah and especially the book of Isaiah, when he uses the word suffering and we, he, he, he uses the word servant, like for those people who would have studied all of this, they would have gone, bingo, he's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about that prophecy. I didn't, I didn't think that prophecy really applied to the Messiah, but that's what he was going for. And he, you know, the, the writer Isaiah, who Jesus is kind of quoting here, is saying, you as a nation, Israel, you were supposed to do that. You were supposed to bring this blessing to the world, and you didn't. You kind of kept it all to yourself. And, so, and, and they couldn't fulfill it, and so Jesus is coming in to fulfill it. He's coming in to make things right. He's coming in to restore what's broken. He's coming in not only to save Israel, but to really save the world. And, and he's going to do that and achieve that victory through sacrifice. And they're starting to figure it out, just starting. Nobody thought that it meant serving. Nobody thought it meant sacrifice. Basically, in that time, and I think today, that everyone believed that if you had power, it meant you could take. That if you had power, you could kind of do whatever you wanted. And Jesus comes, and he never takes. He just gives. And he never, he never just waits for someone to serve him. He goes out and serves and then there's a statement that he gives his life as a ransom or he gives his life as a payment. 
so that we can be released. Released from what? He gives us this payment that we can be released from this pressure of performance, this pressure um, to grab this power, this pressure to like gain status or prestige. He releases us from, from ourselves because we seek, and that's, that's what sin is. We seek this power and this prestige and this status, I think, in our world, just like these people did. Um, so when you, when you hear about the company like downsizing and saying, we're going to evaluate everybody and we're going to pick the best, doesn't everybody start to freak out a little bit and start to backstab each other? And, you know, because I got to get a spot. But where have you ever seen someone who believes in Jesus go, you know what, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to speak honorably to people and about people and see where the chips fall. And sometimes that person loses a job, sometimes they don't. But that's this idea. Um, When Jesus conquered death, he wiped that stuff out. He didn't just conquer death, he conquered sin, he conquered evil, he conquered Satan. And so that way in which it was and sometimes the way in which it still is, doesn't have to be anymore. That the gospel penetrates all that. That's the victory. It's not a victory that the religious leaders saw. It's not a victory that the political leaders saw. It's not even a victory that, that Jesus' friends saw. But it is, it is the mission that Jesus was made for. So, how does that story, and, and by the way, this verse right here is like the climax of the book. So if you've sensed me getting excited, it's because it's supposed to. This boom, what happens in Mark chapter 8, first shall be last, and they scratch their head, and Mark chapter 9, first shall be last, and they scratch their head, and he's like, first shall be last, and, and I will give my life for you to understand this. I will give my life to change this so that the last really will be first, so that that people have a chance to understand and find a relationship with me. This is it. This is like, bam, climax. So how does that idea fit into your life, my life, our story as this, this community? Um, a couple thoughts I have. Maybe you have your own thoughts and God's spirit can speak to you. Um, I think, number one, on a purely human level, it gives me hope. Because if the disciples missed it, maybe I got a chance. Because <laughs> they did. They missed it on a completely one level. On a worldly level, I realized that this, in the time it was written, and how people were jockeying for positions and power and stuff, is very much like our life today. And so I think it speaks to that. When we try and jockey for positions of power and prominence, what are we really doing? But I think um, on, on a God perspective, on this divine perspective of Jesus, what, what it's really saying is that, that we can only know Christ truly through his sacrifice. I mean, first of all, his sacrifice on the cross, but then his life of sacrifice. And if we, like Erica, if we just sit and hear about it, we'll only know a piece of it. But if we experience that sacrificial serving, we really, really, truly come to understand that. And so for others to truly find God, I think they have to see people who believe. They see people who believe, and and how they see their beliefs is not necessarily through their words, but through that sacrificial serving. 
Um, several, several women have walked up to me to say and say, I, I cannot believe how loved I was. I mean, we've had seven services in a row. So if you're new and like, hey, you guys are doing okay. Or if you're new and you're like, wow, you guys really aren't doing a very good. Well, we've only been here seven times. Like, like consistently. And four more before that. <clears throat> but they said, I can't believe that as a new community I felt such love. There was a sacrificial service that happened on Friday and Saturday, and it was beautiful. There's sacrificial service that happens every week when a stage gets put up and curtains get put up and speakers get put up and children's ministries going on in all these other rooms. That's sacrificial service, and when people experience that, they come to understand who God is more, and I think others see that and go, okay, I'm starting to get that these people are different. Um, there are so many, so many religious roadblocks and cultural roadblocks to really understanding Christ. Um, I'd love to just, you know, be here till two o'clock and tell you all of them. Um, throughout history, they've been different. Whether it was the institution in Rome, or whether it was the philosophical nature of Greece, um, or whether it's even like the entrepreneurial nature of America. But all throughout history, there have been religious and cultural roadblocks, and those, those, those things kind of become enmeshed in what, what it means to follow Christ. And so what are we called to do? The same thing that Erica was called to do, to, under, to show people a true picture of God. Remove the religious roadblocks, remove the cultural roadblocks, and just show people what a true picture of God is. And, and as we do that as a community, as we say, okay, what are the religious roadblocks? Is, is, is holding a Bible a religious roadblock from people experiencing? Because I can, I can print out notes. Is, is having a thing that's like this a religious roadblock? Is, is having a greeting time a religious roadblock? Is, you know, what are those things? And, and we'll take everything away outside of, outside of honoring God and true, staying true to his word and Christ and the Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll change everything else so that people can get, a, can get a true understanding of God. Um, that's what I think it looks like for us uh, as a church, as a community. Um, things like the retreat, things like as we, we're going to start this grand opening team actually just in a few minutes. And, um, and maybe you want to come and hear about it. There's my little plug. Um, but we really want to say, okay, as we let people know we're here, what are ways we can do that without the cultural roadblocks, without the religious roadblocks? To just say, hey, this is who Jesus is, and we're a people that are trying to seek him. Um, I think it looks like some of these things that I've heard throughout the community in the last couple weeks. There's a, a, a man who's built a relationship with a co-worker at work, and uh, this co-worker's like, hey, I want to sponsor, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing this service thing, I'm doing this relief work, and He's like, that's cool. Why? I don't know. I think I just think you should do like good things like that. And and he said, and he kind of takes a step of boldness and says, yeah, I agree. I think though it comes from understanding who Jesus is. And he's like, you know, I've never really been into church. And he said, that's fine. But Jesus, he's like, okay, tell me more. He's like, well, have you ever read the Bible? No. Would you like to? Sure. And then he emails me. Oh. Know any good Bible studies? It's great. It's okay. Took a step. I think, in in one sense, I think it looks like another one of our our friends here, um, 
who you might find this weird, but he carries a lighter because four of his coworkers smoke. And, and regardless of how you feel about smoking, he, he carries that. And, uh, and they're like, one of, his, one of his bosses was like, oh, man, I don't have a light. And he's like, oh, here you go. And he was floored. He's like, aren't, but aren't you a Christian? He's like, well, I, yeah, I follow Jesus. But you needed that, right? Yeah, thanks. Roadblock, down. You know, that Christians hate anything that could, well, kill you, but another story. <laughs> There's a lot of things that could kill you. Um, I think it looks like, um, like not going the traditional path um, of college, even though that's what we're supposed to do, and doing something like YWAM. I think it, it means taking a semester off from school to truly discover who Jesus is in, in a place that looks so different than here, to, to change the religious and cultural roadblocks so much that you come to this new understanding of Christ. I think those are some of the ways that we can find out how we're made for that. So what is it for you? You know, for me, it was, it was studying and working at a coffee shop and, uh, on Wednesday, and I saw this lady that, you know, I, I, I think five, six years ago, I was a youth pastor to her kids, or one of her kids, and we had this conversation, and, um, and she leaves, and I go back to studying and typing away, and all of a sudden she comes back over, and she's like, okay, my friend's really, really, really hurting. And, um, you know, this, she said this, these, these Christians told her this, and I'm like, oh, that's not cool. That's not, I, I, that's not how I understand the Bible. And so I just took these moments to say, here's what I think God's word says. She's like, oh, thanks, pastor. I'm like, I'm just your friend. Um, but that's what I think God's word said. Can, can I pray for you? And it was being available, and not just being available, but taking a sacrifice of my time. Um, and so many of you, you sacrifice so much. So if you're hearing this going, is he just telling me that there's just one more thing I have to do? No, I'm not. Hear the words of Jesus that say, well done, good and faithful servant. As you seek and sacrifice and serve, you understand more of who I am and I am with you. But if you're not experiencing any of those things, then are you just trying to learn about them or are you actually doing them? Let's pray. God, we, um, we hear this, this word of being made for a mission. It triggers different things inside of us. For some, it triggers hope. Um, it triggers dreams. It triggers this inspiration to go and, and do something bigger than ourselves. For some of us, it, it triggers dread because we think that there's just one more thing we have to do for you, God. Um, I pray, Lord, that, that you would just remove those, those roadblocks and remove the baggage that comes with this idea that we have to do. We don't have to do anything you have done through your sacrifice. You have made the way. It's a clear path. It's an easy path in one sense of it's simple to understand that you died for sin and you conquered death and through your sacrifice you have victory with God you've restored us to you 
and we can live in that life following you. And as we seek you and, and live out this, this idea of sacrificial service, we come to understand more of who you are and more of your character, but I pray that we would not see that as a burden. Instead, we'd see that as an invitation. So Holy Spirit, speak to us about what that means for us, individually and communally. We pray this in your name. Amen.